0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Hello, and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Villingham.
0: And I'm Natalia Godilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft Security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science.
1: And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft Security. If you enjoy the podcast, have a request for a topic you'd like covered, or have some feedback on how we can make the podcast better,
0: please contact us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com or via Microsoft Security on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, Nick. Welcome back. How were your holidays?
1: Yes, thank you, Natalia. Welcome back to you as well. Mine were great. You know, normally you drive somewhere or you fly somewhere, you go visit people, but this was all the FaceTimes and the Zooms and the Skypes, staycation, but it was still nice to eat too much and drink too much over the holiday period. How about you?
0: Yes, it was, to quote my boss, it was vegetative. It was definitely just a, well, actually, you know what? I did have a big moment over the holidays. I got engaged. Oh, what? I know. Congratulations. Thanks. That's amazing. I feel like it was... Absolute relaxation, really high point during the five-minute proposal, and then we went back to our natural state and just absolute relaxation. Lots of video games.
1: Hang on. So were you like both sitting on the couch, playing some Switch, eating your like 95th (laughs) packet of Doritos, and then all of a sudden your partner like pauses and says, "Um, you want to get hitched?
0: There was a little bit more pomp and circumstance to it. Though I think that would have been very fitting for us.
1: Wow, good on you guys. That's awesome.
0: I'm sure that, like us, everyone has forgotten what they were doing at work. And I'm sure also what this podcast is doing. So why don't we give everyone a after-the-holiday refresher?
1: So just before the holidays, we partnered with Petri, who run the Petri.com site, Therat.com, First Ring Daily, a bunch of other great blogs, podcasts, email newsletters. And so welcome to all our our new listeners who've come to us from Petri, from Therat, from First Ring Daily. Yeah, so what is Security Unlocked? Well... First and foremost, Natalia and I, your co-hosts, we are Microsoft employees, and we will be interviewing, and we do interview on this podcast, other Microsoft employees, but we talk about security topics that hopefully are relevant to all security professionals and those who are interested in the state of cybersecurity. And what we'll do in each episode is the first half is we'll pick sort of a recent-ish Topic, And we'll speak to a subject matter expert or an author of a recent blog post and ask them about the thing that they're working on or that they've announced in the AI and ML space. Hopefully try and demystify some new terms or concepts that, that may be either nascent or, or sort of difficult to wrap one's head around. And then in the second half,
0: We talked to, again, another Microsoft security expert, uh, this time more focused on the individual and their path to cybersecurity. So we'll ask them about what interested them about cybersecurity, what compelled them to join the industry, what jobs they've had, how they've come to Microsoft or their current role. In addition, we also have a new announcement about the podcast, which is we'll be switching to a weekly cadence. So probably. Prior to this, we were bi-weekly. Now, more goodness coming your way.
1: More pod in your pod app. What? Uh, what is the collective <laughs> receptacle for a pod? What is it? More pods in your cast. More cast in your pod?
0: More beans more in podcasts.
1: your pod. Oh, I like that. More beans in your pod. And I think the other thing that's worth reiterating, Natalia, is if you have a cybersecurity topic you would love to learn more about or a perspective you'd like to hear from, please let us know. We'll go after it for you and, and try and bring that to a future episode.
0: Yes, absolutely. We're really thankful to everyone who has reached out thus far and just keep it coming.
1: On today's episode, in the first segment, which we call our Deep Dive, we speak with Ram Shankar Sivakumar, whose title I will not give away in the intro because we talk about it in the conversation and it's an awesome one. Ram works in the Azure Trustworthy ML team. And he's here to talk to us about a blog post that Ram co authored with Ann Johnson that announces a new adversarial ML threat matrix that has been built and published up on GitHub as a collaboration between Microsoft, MITRE, IBM, NVIDIA, Bosch, a bunch of other organizations as a sort of open source approach to this upcoming sort of nascent threat category in adversarial machine learning. And uh, it was a great conversation. And then after that, we speak with...
0: Justin Carroll of the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Global Engagement and Response Team. He started in networking very on the ground and only got his education in cybersecurity later in his career, which I think to anybody out there who's looking to transition to security, who has a different background in security and is wondering whether they can make it, you can. He also chats a little bit about what inspired him to Joined cybersecurity. Some of it came from video games, which is a theme we're seeing again and again. So he had a unique spin on vigilantism within video games, ensuring that those who had an unfair advantage by using mods were checked and tried to level the playing field for all the rest of the players of that game. Uh, and of course, we touch on Ninja Turtles, which uh, is really the highlight of the episode. I think with that, on with the pod.
1: Ramshankar Sivakumar, thank you for joining us on Security Unlocked.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Nick and Natalia. Really appreciate it.
1: So, we're going to talk about a blog post that you co-authored with uh, the wonderful Ann Johnson. The title is, it's a, it's a great title, I get straight to the point. Cyber attacks <laughs> against machine learning systems are more common than you think. Before we get into that, though, I, I just have to ask, you list your, your title as Data oh Cowboy, which is fantastic. Oh I would love Data Cowboy, anything <laughs> cowboy. I would love that for my, for my title. Could you explain to people, what does a Data Cowboy do and, and what is the Azure Trustworthy ML
2: group? Oh, totally. Like, first of all, This is, like, every kid's dream is to be, like, Woody from, like, Toy Story. So (laughs) it's just, like, I realize it in my own way. So when I joined Microsoft in 2013, there really wasn't, like, an ML engineer position. So my boss is like, you can be whatever you want, like, you know. (laughs) You can, you can pick your own title. I was like, yes, Toy Story comes to life. So it's like, this is a brown version of this, like, uh, Woody that you kind of get. So basically, like, what the Trustworthy Machine Learning Group does is that our promise to Microsoft is to essentially ensure we can enable engineers and customers to develop and deploy ML systems securely. So that's kind of like a broad promise that we make to Microsoft and our customers.
1: Got it. I would love to come back to just the Data Cowboy one one more time. Tell me what you do. I mean, I have I have <laughs> visions of you like riding around the office on like a hobby horse, <laughs> you know, like lassoing errant <laughs> databases. Oh, Tell us about no. your day to day. What does it look like?
2: Yeah. So what really happens is that, like I said, I really wish I can ride around my office now at my home and <laughs> like my five minutes good like apartment. Definitely not wouldn't recommend it. What most of the time we end up doing is like um, this is wonderful Hiram Anderson, who's part of our team he He's militantly like looking at how we can detect attacks on machine learning systems, so really working with him and the rest of like the Microsoft community to kind of like keep our eyes and ears on the ground to see like what sort of attacks on machine learning systems we're kind of like seeing like our various different channels and trying to see like how we can detect and like respond and remediate those sort of attacks. So that's like, you know, like the first one big wing. The second thing is like, um, I get to work with a wonderful Will Pierce. So I get to work with him to kind of like think about actively attacking, red teaming Microsoft's machine learning system. So even before our attackers can look at, exploit the vulnerabilities, Will and Hiram kind of like go and actively attack Microsoft's ML systems.
0: So how does the work you do connect to the different product groups? So as you're identifying these cyber attacks, are you then partnering with our products to build those into the detections?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, one of the things I really like about Microsoft is that super like low slick to meet with somebody from another product team so the amazing Mira Lane who heads like the Azure cognitive services so really work very closely with her and I'm sure you you know, I, I believe you have had Holly Stewart in your podcast as well so work very closely with her team so it's really a big partnership with kind of working with leaders from across Microsoft and kind of like shopping around what we're doing and seeing how we can kind of help them and also learn from them because they also have sensors that we know might not have.
1: Let's talk about this blog post. So you and Anne both announced uh, this really interesting sort of consortium of, of, of 11 organizations and you're releasing an adversarial ML threat matrix. It's open source, it's on GitHub. Very exciting. Tell us about it.
2: So the goal of the adversarial ML threat matrix is essentially to empower the security analyst community so that they can start thinking about building detections and updating their uh, response playbooks in the context of like uh, protecting ML systems, and one of the things that that's kind of like we want to be very mindfully different is the attacks that we seeded this framework with. All these techniques, we kind of only put the ones that Microsoft and MITRE jointly vetted that were effective to be against like production machine learning systems. So first of all, the whole area of like attacking machine learning systems it goes all the way back to 2004. In fact, you can find Daniel Loud, his like Twitter handle is D Loud on Twitter today. He, you know, he continues to work on this super cool field and there's a wonderful timeline by this other researcher called Batista Bicho that we also linked to the blog, but he can basically see that this work has gotten immense academic interest for the last like 16 years and especially in the last four years after like a very seminal paper was released in 2014. So when a lot of people think about Spiel, they think of it as, oh, this is something that is really theoretical. This is something that, oh great, you're working in an academic setting, but no, that's not true. There are marquee companies who've all had their ML systems subverted for fun and profit. So the the whole point of this blog post with MITRE and this whole corpus of industry organizations was, this is real. Attacks on machine learning systems is real. You need to start thinking about this. Gartner released a report on 2019 saying 30% of all cyber attacks in 2022 is going to involve like attacks on machine learning systems. So this is not, you know, like a pie in the sky. Oh, I'll get to it when I get to it. 2022 is a year and a half. It's like, or a year away from now. So we got together in this blog post to really empower our security analyst community and help them orient for these new threats.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about what exactly is the Adversarial ML Threat Matrix and how you envision security analysts
2: using this tool? Yeah, totally. So. One of the things that, you know, before we even, like, put this matrix together, we kind of conducted a survey of, like, 28 organizations. You know, we spoke to, like, oh, man, we spoke to, like, everybody from SMBs to governments to, like, large organizations. And we spoke to, like, the security analyst persona as well as the ML engineer persona. I asked them, like, hey, how do you think about securing ML systems? Like, you know, this is a big deal. Like, what are you doing about it? And they were, like, well, we don't have the tools and processes in place. To actually like go and fix these problems. So the first thing we realized is that we wanted like the security analyst community to be introduced to like adversarial ML as a field, try to condense the work that's happening in a framework that they already know. Because the last thing we want to do is to put another framework, another toolkit on their head, and they're just gonna be like, nope, this is not gonna work out. This is one more thing for them to learn. So we kind of took the MITRES attack framework. So this is something that, you know, again, bread and butter for any security analyst today. So we took the attack framework and we kind of said, hey, wouldn't it be really cool like if we took all the ML attacks and put it in this framework? And that's exactly what we did. So you will, if you look at our threat matrix, it's, very, it's modeled after the MITRE attack framework. So the wonderful folks from MITRE's ML research team and us, we got together and we basically aligned the attacks on machine learning systems along reconnaissance, persistence, model evasion, exfiltration. So if you look at the top of like our matrix, the, the column headers are essentially tactics. And the individual ones are techniques. So let's say the, the, an attacker wants to gain initial access to a machine learning subsystem. Let's say that's her goal. So she has a couple of options to kind of execute uh, her goal. She has a couple of techniques in her, in her kitty. The first thing is that she can just like send a phishing email to like an ML engineer. That's very valid. Phishing is not going to go away. The second thing that she can do is she can take a pre-trained ML model available that people generally download, and she can backdoor it. So the whole point of this attack matrix is to A, build a common corpus of attack techniques and attack tactics in in a framework that a security analyst already has knowledge of.
0: Are you seeing any trends? What's most common to
2: combine? Oh, that's a great question. So... Before I just like step into this, like I first want to tell you about this attack called like model replication. So the easy way to think about this, and Natalia, I will get to this. I promise. <laughs> this
0: is, <laughs> I love the excitement. I'm so ready you know, for it. Just,
2: just like, you know, we're going to take a little detour like Virgil and Homer. So essentially, <laughs> the best way to think about model replication is that OpenAI is, is a very famous ML startup. And they last year released a model called GPT-2. And they said, hey, you know what? We're not going to release the entire model immediately. We're going to release it in a staged process. You know, we're not going to just, because we want to do like our own verification. And before they could even, they could release the entire model, these spunky researchers, I love that. They're so cool. Vanya Cohen, and I know his like little other person's sort of name is Skylion with a, with a O. They replicated GPT two is like one point five billion parameter model, and they released it on the internet on Twitter, and they call it Open GPT two. And I love their tagline, which is like GPT two of equal or lower value. So, <laughs> so you can like so. Here's this even before the company could release, they replicated the ML model based on the data sets that were available based on like the architecture. And they, they basically, at the end of the day, and we also referenced in our case study, is that they basically like tweaked an existing model to match GPT-2s and they publish that for everybody to use. Now, it does not have the same accuracy or the same metrics as the original GPT-2 model. But the fact that an attacker can even replicate your ML model using you know, publicly available data sets and like having some insights about the architecture is something for people to think about. So now to come back to your excellent question. So what exactly is like a common pattern? So what essentially we see attackers doing is that They go interact with the machine learning system. The attackers will might send some data. They might get some like responses back. And they keep doing that enough amount of time, and they now have sufficient data to replicate the ML model. So the first step is that they go and replicate the ML model. And from the ML model that they have replicated, they go do like an offline attack. They go like, you know, because now they have like their own ML model. They go, you know, they try to evade this ML model and then they find a way to evade the ML model and they take those, the examples of the test points that evade the ML model and now evade the online, the real ML model that's out there. Taking that and then boom, fooling the real online ML model. So that's a common data point. You've got like three case studies in our Address ML GitHub page that actually kind of shows this.
1: So is the sort of takeaway from that, if your data set is public, don't make your ML architecture
2: public or, and and or vice versa? That's a great question. And, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. First of all, we definitely want to be transparent about the way we build our ML models, right? Mark Oh gosh, such an amazing guy. For the last so many years at RSA has been like militantly been talking about how we build our ML models for security purposes because we want to give insights into like our customers about how we actually build ML models. And the data sets are machine learning as a field, it has its norms of opening up our data sets. In fact, one can attribute the entire deep learning revolution to Dr. Fei Fei Lee's ImageNet like, data set, which really sparked this whole revolution. So, you know, I, I really don't want anybody to think that being open with their data sets or being open with their ML platforms is a good idea. Because, like, even if you think of traditional cybersecurity, right? security by obscurity is never a good strategy. So the way we want to push people to think about is, how are you thinking about detection? How are you thinking about response? How are you thinking about remediation? So really trying to take the assumed breach mindset and feeding it into like your ML systems is how we, how we want to push the field towards. So if you take away anything from this is continue to be opening your systems for scrutiny because that's the right thing to do. That's the norms that we have set. And that's important to advance research in this field and think about detection strategies and think about and assume breach strategies for building ML systems. We wanted to distinguish between like traditional attacks and attacks on ML systems. So the one thing that I want to think about is like the, the threat matrix contains both traditional attacks and attacks on ML systems, whereas the taxonomy only contains attacks on ML systems. The second difference is that, like I said, the matrix is meant for security analysts. This one is meant for like policymakers and engineers. The third, that's more important difference, is that in the context of the threat matrix, essentially... We are only putting attacks that we have validated against commercial ML systems. It's not a laundry list of attacks. We're not trying to taxonomize.
1: I wondered if you could talk about the approach and the philosophy here for putting this on GitHub and making it open to the community. How do you hope folks will contribute? How would you like them to contribute?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Mikel Rodriguez, who runs the MITRE, who we collaborated with, wonderful team over there, Before putting this out on GitHub, there was a little bit of angst, right? Because this is not like a fully baked product. This is something that 13 organizations found useful, but doesn't mean like everybody in the community might find useful. And I think he said something to the effect of like...
1: It's almost as if you're a cowboy.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there you go, hurting people. It was like, we're putting this out, acknowledging this is a, a first cut attempt. This is a living document This is something that we have found useful as 13 organizations, but we really are hoping to get feedback from the community. So, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're excited about this, please come and contribute to this matrix. If you think there are attacks that are missing, if you would like to spotlight a case study on a commercial ML system, we are super looking to get feedback on this. And we also kind of realized that we wanted a safe space, almost, to talk about attacks on ML systems. So we were like, you know what, we're just going to have a little Google Groups. And the membership in that Google Groups is extremely diverse. We've got philosophers who are interested in adversarial machine learning. We've got people who are in, looking at it from various perspectives, joining our Google Groups and kind of like, you know, giving us feedback on how we can make it better.
0: Yeah, as you mentioned, there are tons of different perspectives coming into play here. So how do you envision the different roles within the community interacting? What do you think needs to happen for us to be successful in combating these threats?
2: Yeah, this is a great question. The one thing that I've learned is that this topic is immensely complex. It's mind-boggling to wrap, you know, like the different personas here. So I'll just give you like a rundown, right? So, so far, we've got, you know, policymakers are interested in like securing ML systems because every national AI strategy out there is like securing ML systems is top priority for them. ML engineers are thinking about this. Academic researchers, there were like 2,000 papers published in the last, I want to say like, five or six years on this topic. So they are like a hotbed of research we want to rope into. They've got security analysts from these companies that we're talking to are interested. CISOs are also thinking about this because this is a new threat for them. So, you know, as a business decision maker, how should they think about this? And one thing that I got an opportunity with Frank Nagel, who is a professor at HBS, we wrote a piece at Harvard Business Review talking about, is it time to insure ML systems? ML systems are kind of like failing. So, you know, if your ML powered, like vacuum cleaner kind of like burns your home down, what do you do about it? We're trying to rope in like the insurers to come and like participate in this. So Natalia, this is such a green field. And the only way we're going to like get ahead is to really get people excited and try for clarity together as a community. How would an ML-powered vacuum cleaner work? I was going
0: to say, that sounds like a 2020 <laughs> headline. Like, ML-powered vacuum cleaner burns down house a threat. <laughs>
2: oh, my gosh. So okay. It's, Man bites dog. This, there you go. It's funny because this was not like an example that I made up. I wish I did. I, I know. Yes, Nick. I see. What? Yes. <laughs> what? My jaw is, is hitting the, the... What? Yes. All right. This is a well-documented paper called Concrete Problems in AI Safety. And they talk through the most, it's like Final Fantasy. Like everything that needs to go wrong (laughs) is going wrong. So, you know, they're like robots that are kind of burning down homes, breaking things that they can clean up. So if your machine learning system is not trustworthy, there are going to be problems. And you really need to think about that.
1: I can't even get my kettle to boil.
2: (laughs) But the thing that really worries me is ML applications used in healthcare. You know, you keep seeing headlines like machine learning systems being used by radiologists, beats radiologists when it comes to identifying like malignant tumors and things like that. There's a fantastic work by Samuel Finelson from Harvard. He kind of showed that if you take like an x-ray image, just take it and slightly rotate it and you give it to the ML system, it goes from very confidently thinking that it's malignant to very confidently judging it's benign and that is really scary in the the beginning of the podcast we spoke a lot about how like an adversary can subvert machine learning systems for fun and profit But oh boy there is an entirely separate world of how machine learning systems can fail by themselves what we call like unintentional failure modes and trust me you will want to go live in the middle of the north cascades in a cabin after you read that work, you'd be like, I am not getting anything ML powered until they figure this out. But the good news is they're extremely smart people, including Hiram and Will from my team, who are looking into this problem. So you can feel a little bit like a that, you know, they're the true Avengers out there.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. I love all the head
0: nods from us. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it underscores the fact that we only know a percentage of the knowledge on ML, so we just need a community behind this. No one company person can know all of it.
2: Oh, absolutely. Oh, my gosh, yeah. When we opened the adversarial ML Threat Matrix Google Group, We now went from like zero. We thought like nobody's going to join this Google group. It's going to be like a pity party. We're like, you know, I'm going to like email Mikkel from Uh MITRE and he's going to respond back to me. But no, we kind of like like went from zero to like 150 right now over just like the last four days.
0: So Ram, thank you for giving us all of this context on the adversarial ML threat matrix. So what's Microsoft's continued role? What's next for you and ML?
2: First of all, we're hiring. <laughs> so, you know, if you'd like to come and join us, we are looking for developers to come and join us in this quest. So please email like anybody, even Nick, and he can forward his resume. Do you need
1: to have a cowboy hat? Is oh, a cowboy so, hat a necessity? Not at
2: all. Like we will we will accept you for who you are. <laughs> so <laughs> we gonna provide the cowboy hats. We will provide like <laughs> everything, <laughs> anything to make you feel comfortable. So we're growing and we'd love to kind of like work with the folks. With the Adversarial Track Matrix, like I said, We really are looking for feedback from the community. We really think that, like Natalia very correctly pointed out, this is a problem so big that we can only solve it if we all come together. So please go to our GitHub link. I'm sure Nick and Natalia might put a link to it. We'd love to get our feedback. The second thing is, if you kind of are, we are especially looking for people to come and add case studies. If you think we're missing a tactic, or if you think that you've seen an attack on an ML system, on a commercial ML system, please reach out to us. We'd be happy to kind of include that in the repository.
1: If your autonomous vacuum cleaner has attempted to (laughs) uh, undermine democracy, (laughs) let us know.
2: And, And the one thing that I want everybody to take away is that when we did our survey, 25 out of 28 organizations did not have tools and processes to kind of secure their ML systems. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't have like a guidance, do not feel alarmed. You're tracking with the majority of the industry. In fact, three organizations, all of whom were large in our survey, even thought about this problem. So there are tools for you and processes that are put out. So in our docs at Microsoft.com, there's chat modeling guidance, there's taxonomy, there's a bug bar that you can give to your instant responders uh, so that they can triage bugs. And for the security analyst community, there is the adversarial and threat matrix. So please go read them and please give us feedback because we really want to grow.
0: I love it. Thank you for that. It's a great message to end on.
2: Awesome. Thank you, Nick and Natalia, for having me. Really appreciate it. This was really fun.
0: And now let's meet an expert from the Microsoft security team to learn more about the diverse backgrounds and experiences of the humans creating AI and tech at Microsoft. Today, we're joined by Justin Carroll threat analyst on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Global Engagement and Response Team. Well, thank you for joining us, Justin.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Well, can we kick things off by you just sharing your role at Microsoft? What does your day-to-day look like?
3: So my role is typically related to threat hunting across large data sets to find advanced adversaries and understand what they're doing, look for detection opportunities, and communicate out the behaviors of the specific threats that we're finding to partner teams or to our customers to help them understand the threat landscape and kind of staying on top of what attackers are doing.
0: That's super interesting. And uh, can you talk a little bit about any recent patterns that you've identified or interesting findings in your last six, eight months?
3: Well, it's been a busy six or eight months, I will say, because <laughs> uh, everybody's been very busy with COVID. We've been seeing a, quite a large increase in like human-operated ransomware and stuff like that. So I've been working really hard to try and figure out different ways to try and surface their behaviors as early as we can to customers to help them take action before the ransom happens. And we've been seeing quite a few other different really advanced adversaries compromising networks Um, A lot of it's kind of the same old, same old, just more of it. But uh, it's always interesting, and there's never a shortage of new findings each day and kind of moments of, oh, that looks like this, or they're doing this now. Awesome. Great.
0: (laughs) You mentioned you're, you're constantly trying to find new ways to identify these faster. What are the techniques that you're trying to use to find the threats quicker?
3: So there's a whole bunch of different ways that you kind of try and surface the threats quicker. Some of it's research and reading other people's work and blogs and stuff like that. I tend to live in the data most of all, where I'm constantly looking at existing attacks and then trying to find similar related behaviors or payloads or infrastructure and pivoting on those to try and attempt to find the attack to be ready to find it as early as possible in what's called the kill chain. So like, from the time that the attacker gets in the network, how quick can we find them before they've had a chance to conduct their next set of actions? So whether if they're stealing credentials or something like that, can we surface them before they've had a chance to do the credential theft? Um, And then kind of uh, always trying to move earlier and earlier in the kill chain to understand how they got there and then what are some of the first things that they did when they did get there and how do we surface those next? Because uh, a lot of those are a little bit more difficult to surface because it can kind of tend to blend in with a lot of other legitimate activities.
1: What kind of tools do you use, Justin? Are you are you you know are you are you in network logs and sort of writing queries? Are you are you you know is there a big giant futuristic dashboard that you you sit in front of and you have you know virtual reality gloves moving big chunks <laughs> of numbers left and right? Well, like, what, what are the tools of your trade? So
3: one of the tools that we use a lot. There is a bunch of data that's stored customer facing. It's usually called like Azure Data Lake. It's these huge databases with large amounts of information where you can construct queries with what's called KQL. Um, I believe it's Custo Query Language. So there's a, a specific tool for kind of deep diving into all of that data across our many different sources and then using that to basically structure and create different queries or methods of finding uh, interesting data and then kind of pivoting on that data. And then in addition, I've built some of my own tools to kind of help improve my efficiency or automate some of the stuff that I have to do all the time. And then just to make me faster at hunting for the things that I'm looking for.
1: Is it a, an AI version of yourself? Is it a virtual, Justin? <laughs> uh,
3: no, we work with the ML team to try and share as much knowledge with them as possible. But
1: uh, there is no tool for an AI, Justin, as of yet. Well, let's back it up a bit. So one of the things we we like to do in these uh, interviews with the um, security SMEs, I'm not even sure if we've explained what an SME, we call that a subject matter expert. That's a an acronym we use a lot here at Microsoft. I think it's pretty broadly known, but if you've heard us say SME or SME, that's what it means. Now, you and I, we cross paths, about it a year ago for the first time when Jessica Payne, who actually hasn't been on the podcast yet, Jessica introduced me to you and she said, you have to talk to Justin. And she gave me three sort of very disparate but intriguing bits of data about you. She said, Justin used to climb telegraph poles. He is a big Star Wars fan and is in a metal band. And and I'm sure I've gotten those three things slightly wrong. Could you kind of talk about your journey into the security space and then sort of how you found yourself working for Microsoft. But first of all, these three things that Jessica told me, are any of them true? They're mostly there. So
3: some of these will kind of combine. For the, the telephone climbing aspect, I used to work for a wireless internet provider that had leases or specific towers, like cell phone towers or other towers on top of mountains, essentially, where we would have wireless radio dishes that would communicate to each other. So I was occasionally tasked with installing and or fixing said towers, which is okay. If you are fine with heights, I wasn't at first, but you just kind of get used to it and you kind of realize like once you're above 20 feet, it really doesn't make any difference. If you fall, it's going to hurt. But the uh, climbing a tower in the winter and in the wind and where you can barely feel your hands and all that wasn't great. I was a pretty big Star Wars fan growing up as a kid. Even more of a Ninja Turtle fan. And as for metal, I used to be in a band with some friends, and have been playing guitar for twenty-five or twenty-six years. And uh, music has been a
1: very huge part of my life, um, and remains to be. I I think we'll circle back to Ninja Turtles. I'm I'm not going to let that one go. But so let's talk about your path into security. So was this your working for the wireless internet provider? Was this your was this your first job? Was this mid career? Where does that fit in your sort of LinkedIn chronology and 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 at what point did you use formally into security?
3: So it's a, been a long and winding road to uh, get here, I would say. So the internet provider was what I would guess I'd call my first career job of sorts. I had started there in my early 20s and worked mm-hmm. for them for about, sorry, my cat is right in front of the microphone. One second. <coughs>
1: Leave no, leave, down. leave the cat there. <laughs> leave the cat there.
3: Uh, she wanted to say her piece. So I worked for the internet company for just under a decade. I used to do some networking type fun stuff in Halo 2 to kind of maybe garner a little bit of an advantage, I guess I would say, and used those learned skills to land that first job. And I did that for quite a while, but realized I was kind of stuck in this job. It was in a city that I didn't want to live in. And I had kind of maxed out my capabilities there. I had uh, attempted to move to Portland because I wanted to have kind of like a bigger city. Experience applied to 254 jobs, got one interview for basically like a office tech support role was the only position I got hired, but it wasn't feasible to live in Portland. So after quite a bit of soul searching and realizing that Basically, nobody cared that I had eight years of on-the-job experience because I didn't have a college degree. There were not any doors open for me for the most part. Um, I then decided to take a pay cut and go get a job at a university that was just a city over and uh, work full-time and go to school for a degree in cybersecurity while working full-time for the university, doing uh, kind of technical work for them, helping them understand their... Sorry, my cat is a whole thing
1: right now. Um, Your cat's just trying to like interject <laughs> with like, don't, hey, you, you glossed over that Halo 2 thing. We got to come back to that. <laughs> Let me, uh, Arya, come here. <laughs> we're leaving all this in, by the way.
0: Yeah, we're very much enjoying it.
3: So kind of advising uh, the university on uh, different technologies that they could use for their students. Um, so did that for about three and a half years while going to school. And then graduated top of my class and applied for another 150 some odd jobs in mostly the Seattle area this time and was about to give up because even though I now had a degree and almost 10 years of experience, it still wasn't enough. And everybody that I kept losing to had between 10 and 20 years experience and it just wasn't an option for folks with less specific cybersecurity experience to kind of enter the field. There were a lot of walls that were put up. I had a friend of a friend who worked for cybersecurity at a company somewhere in Arizona who I'd never met. And uh, he decided to um, go out of his way, even though I've never met him, and look for some cybersecurity type jobs in my area that, he thought maybe I'd be good for and help me look at my resume and stuff like this. And that helped me land a vendor role for Microsoft, where I kind of started uh, my path and career towards cybersecurity-specific stuff. I had basically given up at that point on ever working in cybersecurity and had kind of thought that it just wasn't meant for me. So that was kind of a big break. and. uh I almost closed the application to apply for the job and then figured what's the worst they could say is no. That is kind of how I finally got to Microsoft and cybersecurity where I was able to work as a vendor for the team evaluating kind of telemetry. And I was kind of given an opportunity to learn a lot and that eventually transitioned into uh, when a position became available where I started working full-time as a Microsoft employee and went from there.
0: So what in your soul search brought you to cybersecurity? Was it your background, the fact that you already had those foundations as a network admin, or was there something in particular in the cybersecurity world that just attracted you?
3: I'd always found it fascinating. When I started university, they just launched the cybersecurity program the, the quarter that I started there. And one of my friends who was a computer science major basically called me up immediately and was like, hey, they just launched this. You need to do this. And there's, you know, the very popular culture aspect of it where everybody thinks it's fascinating. And, you know, sure, there was a little bit of a grab um, with that. But uh, I like learning how computers work. And I like kind of the constant problem solving nature of everything. And the first class I took on it, um, I was hooked. And uh, still remains that day where it's just it's fascinating and it's really fun to just kind of continually uh, work to see what attackers are doing. But I also there's a huge aspect of it. Like I like helping people. I think it's important and having a role where I'm able to help millions or even potentially billions of people through you know better detections or you know stopping malware.
1: It feels pretty great. What other aspects, Justin, of of your your path to security, your path to Microsoft. Do you feel you're sort of bringing forward? I want to ask about you. You very briefly mentioned something about Halo Two, and I, I, I want to know what that, what that was. And then I wonder if if there were other sort of, dare I say, sort of maybe unorthodox or you know non traditional things that you that you worked on where you've you you learned a bunch of bunch of tools or tricks of the trade that you're, you're bringing forward to your work right now.
3: So Halo Two was a fun one. Uh, back in those days, there were lots of what were called modders. Who would, you know, mod their Xboxes to gain an unfair advantage? So I would use my networking know-how, basically, and learned a lot of it to, when encountering a modder, to kick them out of the game. I think it was possibly a little frowned upon, but I was tired of having cheaters constantly win. So I did a lot of research, and I didn't know a whole lot about networking at that point, but. Uh, it's. I tried to not use it as like a competitive advantage, but more to just level the playing field. But it was a great way to learn how like firewalls worked and network traffic and building more on my understanding of computers. And then kind of that set a foundation for me of understanding like there's always going to be stuff that I don't know. And what I have done, I did it all through college and continued um, all the way till basically getting full-time employment at Microsoft was... I set up a lab environment, and I would set up servers and clients, and I would attack them and monitor the logs on my own little private lab on my machine and see what worked, what didn't, try and figure out why it worked, what didn't, and try and build different tools to see how I could make it more effective or deal with different issues, just kind of both playing attacker and defender at the same time on my network all by myself, essentially, and kind of learning from all of that data was massively important. And uh, anybody who's looking to get into security, I highly recommend both learning how to attack, you know, on a safe, your you know, your own little lab environment where you're not hurting anybody. And what's it like to try and defend and find those attacks? Cause both sides are Red Justin versus blue Justin. Exactly, yes.
0: You noted earlier that uh, just the sheer amount of data can be overwhelming, especially as you moved through your career and then came to Microsoft where we have billions of signals. So, it, the same transition happens from Halo to now, the, just the sheer scale and scope of your role and the amount of uh, good that you can do. So you know, how did you handle that overwhelming amount of information, amount of impact that you can have?
3: So when I was first brought on, one of the things that made a significant difference was uh, I had somebody that um, kind of instructed me in a lot of the ways of kind of how to, work with the data but I was also given quite a bit of an area for trial and error so there was uh, lots of opportunity to fail and to learn from what didn't work and to kind of keep building on that and then anytime that I got stuck or you know I would kind of just do everything I could to attempt to solve the problem or work with the data if I kind of hit a wall that I couldn't climb on my own I could go to him and then we would solve it together so it was kind of like both a mentoring and a guidance thing, but also kind of given that ability to experiment and try and learn. So that was kind of one of the biggest ways of learning to pivot on that data and understand it and consume it. And then honestly, collaboration with other folks on my team and other team was massively instrumental to be able to kind of learn what they had already learned or pass on my knowledge to them and just that constant sharing and understanding because there is so much data it's quite impossible almost to be an expert at all of it. So having those folks that you can reach out to that are experts in each basically set of their data so you can understand what the data is trying to tell you because that's one of the things that is particularly difficult is to take the data and actually glean understanding from it. And you if the data is trying to tell you something, you just need to make sure you're interpreting the message correctly.
0: And how do AI and ML factor into your role, into helping you manage this data and and collaborating with other teams?
3: So I work quite a bit with a, a lot of different data science folks on a few different teams to either use a lot of the models that they're creating to kind of... Uh, source a lot of the malicious information or uh, particular attackers or stuff like that and then also collaborating back and sharing my knowledge and intelligence to them to say this is what an attack looks like, this is what it should look like in the data Um, and kind of giving them the ideas and signals for what they should be looking in their data to kind of train those models. It's really important to have that partnership between security and data science for AI and ML to kind of help them understand the security sphere of it. And then they can kind of take the, the real math and data prowess that they've got and turn our knowledge into ML or AI to detect and surface a lot of these things. If it's
1: possible, Justin, how would you sort of summarize your guidance to other Justin Carrolls that are out there that are, you know, they want to get into security, they're fascinated by cybersecurity in, in sort of a macro sense, but they feel they either, you know, either they don't have a degree or they're not even sure what they should go study or they're trying to work out how can they translate their current sort of career uh, experience and, and sort of skills. Like, what, what Can you summarize that into some guidance of, of what, pe- what folks should do to try and break in?
3: Sure. One, if you're in school, remember that school's not going to teach you a lot of the stuff that you need to know. It's lots of taking what you're learning and building upon it uh, outside. So, like if it's cybersecurity that's an interest, try and experiment and figure like cybersecurity is huge. There are so many different facets of it. Find out the thing that kind of scratches the itch and like piques your interest. Like for me, that was setting up a lab, right, where I could play both. The attacker, the defender, the person monitoring logs, the person setting up all the configurations to try and stop the attacks, and was able to kind of see all different aspects of the industry.
1: And was that literally, sorry, just jump in, was that literally just a bunch of VMs on your machine, or did you have multiple PCs sort of networked together? Like, just very quickly, what did that sort of look like? How, how accessible is setting up a lab, I guess on what I'm asking.
3: It is pretty accessible. So while I was in college, it was actually multiple machines and I had like four different machines and um, I set up a router that you could pick up for 50 bucks and a smart switch that I could mirror the traffic on to understand everything for like a hundred bucks. So it was, you know, there was a little bit of cost. That was kind of my college setup. And as I was kind of learning where I at that point, it uh, made a little more sense to do it with like actual machines. And for extra clarity, like my college was only a couple of years ago. Like I, I did not go to college young. So the next route that I did once I uh, had landed my vendor role and was kind of like securities for me, and I want to keep building on it. I did it all with VMs. So I just had a desktop computer that was with you know okay specifications, and I configured two clients, the domain controller or server on the device, and then like a mail server, and then. Basically, you would just connect to each client and then network them all together. So at that point, you know, you can use VirtualBox, you can use lots of different stuff. So like the the availability of doing that's actually pretty good. Like there isn't a lot of overhead cost or anything like that. You just have to have a okay computer.
0: What about resources to learn how to do all of that? Are there organizations or sites that someone could turn to if they're interested in starting to do some of this, starting to experiment with what they're interested in?
3: Honestly, I would say one of the best resources that I had throughout was YouTube. It was a great place to get walkthroughs for every different thing. So like, I wanted to learn how to set up a VM and configure it with networking to another VM. I turned to YouTube. I wanted to learn how to attack the VM using Kali Linux. YouTube. And there's a whole bunch of different channels out there that, you know, folks specifically focus on that. And then the other thing is, because it's, you know, so much more open for creators to share content, you can find people who are at a similar level, or maybe just a few steps ahead of you. So you can really kind of join along with other people. There are a few websites um, for like coding, I think one's called like Hack in the Box uh, as far as like uh, attacking different things. And that was also kind of fun where like a lot of the devices that need to be attacked were already pre-configured for you. But for me, honestly, a lot of the fun was setting up those devices and then learning what I did that worked and didn't and what allowed it to be attacked and what I could do to stop that.
0: Quick plug, Microsoft Security also has a YouTube channel in case somebody would like to get any how-to content on our products.
1: Natalia so, may or may uh, not be what... involved in that channel. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a full disclosure there.
0: Yeah, I couldn't help myself. Um. <laughs> But it is also great to, <laughs> great to hear uh, that you found people to work with in the community as well. That's something that's been noted by a few of our guests, like Michelle Lamb, that as the, she was entering the space, she found mentors, she found conversations, uh, people readily available to either work on a problem alongside her or uh, just answer questions. So I'm glad that you've also been able to turn to the community for that. So what's next for you? Is there a new challenge that you'd like to solve?
3: Definitely want to work on the toolkit that I'm building and kind of continue that growth. It's been interesting to kind of see the the hurdles I run into. And even like last week, I ran into one that felt insurmountable and was able to chat with one of the devs and solve it in a few minutes and learned a whole lot. And going forward, now I have that in my pocket. And then
1: both like... Hang on, did you, say, after- <laughs> did you say you went from found a new challenge thought oh this is insurmountable and then a few minutes later you solved it with a little support from
3: you know people that you know knew what they knew how to solve the problem so like collaborating with like one of the one of the other devs on the team and basically having him kind of explain the part you know it felt like a giant wall but really once you kind of have somebody break it down a little bit for you it was just like oh okay i see what i'm missing here and then it was just
1: like got it okay moving forward Oh, I see. So that, that's more an endorsement. Yeah, I get it.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's more an endorsement of others' uh, teaching abilities and just kind of like those times of being able to reach out to others for when you really get stuck and how much of a difference it can make. You know, I'd spent an hour on something and was just like, this is ridiculous. This should work. Why isn't it working? What's wrong with me? I'm not smart. And then just chatting with them a little bit and then figuring it out and being like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. That's actually pretty simple. It's... Just wasn't thinking about it in the right way and kind of getting that other perspective and then what's next kind of going forward is a kind of continued partnership with a lot of the data science folks to i think we've only scratched the surface in many ways as an industry on like how data science and cybersecurity can work together so i am very excited to kind of see what kind of stuff we can accomplish whether it's you know surfacing attacks shortly after they happen, you know, very early in the kill chain or understanding related behaviors and trying to understand who the threats might be. Or I think most of all, like the intent of the attack or adversary intent can sometimes be a very difficult to suss out, even for socks and their entire center. They have all these folks that are trying to figure out what happened, why did it happen? and like, what does it actually mean? So if we can have data science that can provide a lot of context on that through understanding existing attacks and you know, modeling what future ones might look like, I think there's uh, some pretty exciting opportunities there. All
1: right, I'm doing it. We're coming to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> you, uh, you're a fan. How much of a fan are you, Justin? Uh,
3: I would say quite a fan. Um, I do have a couple of figurines and uh, a mint package unopened from... Uh, <laughs> 87, I think, something like that. And then um, have a uh, Ninja Turtles tattoo on my back of Raphael. So that was kind of one of those moments where I was trying to think about, you know, what steps I wanted to take forward in life and things like that. And I'd kind of thought about like, (laughs) you know, what are the things that actually make me happy? This was probably like my mid-20s quarter life crisis kind of thing. And uh, I was like, you know, I always liked the Ninja Turtles as a kid. They always brought me great joy. I still get excited about watching them. The movies are definitely a guilty pleasure. I realize they're not great, but um, now I'm talking about the original movies, not the new ones. We won't talk about the new movies. And uh, it was just one of those, like, yeah, I kind of, I identify with this. This is a huge part of my life. It's been around since I was, you know, it was started the year I was born. So I was just like, all right, let's do it. And I haven't regretted it at all.
1: I mean, I was going to ask who your favorite turtle was, but you have obviously, you know, if you've inked Raphael on your back, (laughs) then that's, that's, uh, that question is moot. Um, are Uh, you, uh, so I'm, I'm a Donatello guy. I've always
3: been a Donatello guy. I would think of myself as Raph, but really I'm more of a Donatello. Like Raph was kind of the cool guy with a little bit of an attitude, but really like I was Donatello. I have, you know, when I was 10 dressed up for Halloween, I was Donatello I, I'm definitely Donatello with a little bits raft thrown in for good measure.
1: <laughs> well, this has been a blast. Thank you, Justin, for walking us down Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle memory lane and Halo 2 memory lane <laughs> and sharing your story with us. It was great. Wonderful to get your perspective. Great to have you as a part of the Threat Hunter team here at Microsoft and contributing in in uh, all the ways that you do. Thanks for joining us. I'm sure we'll talk to you again at some point on the Security Unlocked podcast, but uh, keep doing you, cowabunga, dude. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. It was great to talk to you all.
0: Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode.
1: And don't forget to tweet us at MSFTsecurity or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe.
0: Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence podcast, join me to learn from our experts about how machine learning and data science are transforming the SOC. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.